Good morning. It's Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. I'm Blois Olson, your host on October 2nd, 2022. Just over five weeks away from Election Day and two big topics. One is national politics and kind of where Republican momentum is or not right now. Has the momentum that Democrats had with the Dobbs decision started to, to soften a little? And then polling. We all watch it. We all look at it. And we'll talk more about it this hour when we come back, the take of the week. It was another week where in the governor's race, the feeding the future issue, scandal, mess, whatever you want to call it, it still dominated the news cycle in the governor's race. And you started to see it was going to be a challenge for the Walls team to figure out. I made a trip to the Iron Range where it's being talked about, but the worry there is inflation and the cost of winter fuel, whether it's propane or heating oil. Monthly heating costs on the range could get to $1,000 a month. Inflation showed some resilience on the pocketbook. A, Incomes are up, B, people had some savings. But when you start to think about having to spend $1,000 a month on home heating costs, as I wrote on Friday, that's keep you up at night worries for a family. It's been a long time since we've had those en masse. The mood of Minnesota is starting to be fall, and it's starting to tune into this election. These races are inevitably going to close and get tighter. But at the end of the day, it's all going to come down to turnout. And the model this year is going to be a challenge to figure out. Margins for Democrats in the cities and Republicans in greater Minnesota are going to be watching to see what the suburbs do. When we come back, Congressman Tom Emmer, he's got a big national role in Republicans' chances of retaking the U.S. House. And what job does he want in the future? I'm Blois Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Joining me now on Sunday Take is Congressman Tom Emmer. He's the chairman of the NRCC, which is the campaign uh, arm of the National Republican House uh, Caucus. Uh, and I'm obviously he's a Minnesotan, but he has a national perspective and Thanks for joining me, Congressman Emmer. Glad to be with you, Blois. Uh, let's start nationally. Uh, you know, one of the things you said early in the summer when Republicans were really optimistic was don't measure the curtains quite yet. Um, where do you feel things are now and, and how cautiously optimistic have you been the last, you know, 30 to 45 days? Well, actually, I go back, uh, uh, you know, almost a year. Uh, I've been uh, saying the same thing for a long time, Blois. Uh, why? Uh, well, in uh, 2010, when Republicans picked up uh, 63 seats in that midterm, John McCain had won 48 of them two years earlier. Uh, this time, we've targeted 74 at the national level. Uh, Donald Trump only won 16 of the 74. We are playing in a, a Biden country. Uh, and that's why it's such a different election. But I've also made it clear that, uh, you know, these two year election cycles, they're like a uh, they're like a baseball season, boys. 
you play 162 games, you go through the ups and downs of those games, you can be very successful. Uh, but you know what? When you get to Labor Day on the, uh, the election year, uh, you just want to be ready to uh, participate in the playoffs. And you do that with great candidates. You do that with the right message and with enough money. And, you know, coming into September, we had all three. Now, it did exactly what it always does, Blois. And maybe you want to talk about this, but everything always tightens up as you get to uh, uh, Labor Day of the election year. That's what, exactly what it did in August. But what are we seeing now? Uh, since the NRCC's ads went up, we didn't have ads up across the country. Uh, obviously, some Democrats started in July and in August. When our ads went up uh, the last couple of weeks, Blois, uh, the numbers are moving in our our direction again uh, in a very uh, uh, very strong way. So. Uh, cautiously optimistic, but we have won nothing yet. You got 39 days left and you got to work right through the final bell. You know, you, that is interesting about the ads and, and I've noticed, you know, I'd say four, six years ago, you know, ads on both sides were just starting earlier and earlier, but you know, my sense of the electorate this year has been that, um, they were going to engage late, that they've been mildly exhausted by the public six years on both sides of the aisle that uh, getting people just kind of want to just go about life without. But I have seen it pick up since Labor Day, certainly here in Minnesota, since the state fair. Um, Have the issues changed, you know, in the last, you know, four to five months or are the core issues, inflation, um, crime, depending on where you are in the country, um, the environment, uh, what are those, what are, what are you seeing in the issue dynamics right now? Cost of living, crime and the border are still the, uh, the top issues. Uh, parental uh, 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 rights, if you will, uh, for lack of a better term, the right of parents to uh, make decisions for their children uh, and be involved in things like their children's education is uh, still an issue, uh, depending on where you're at. And then there's a whole host of others uh, because the congressional races, uh, Blois, as you know, they're the largest local race on the ballot. So it's not just the national issues of cost of living that is just soaring. Uh, It's not uh, uh, just about crime, which it's uh, crime you may have noticed in the last couple of weeks is uh, is rising again on the issue matrix and uh, in the border, uh, especially when you relate it to the fentanyl crisis in this country. I saw there was an arrest made uh, yesterday of someone that had 24 pounds of fentanyl. You know how many people that can kill? I mean, just a a touch of that stuff uh, uh, puts people into overdose. So this is a crisis all across the country. Those are the issues, uh, Blois, that matter most to the voters. Yeah, no, I think the estimate on the arrest and uh, confiscation in Bloomington was it could kill one-fifth of Minnesota. I mean, that's just you you stop that stops you in your tracks for sure um one of the things that i know you worked hard on as chair of the nrcc and it's something that from the local level city council to the legislature to congress you know i've been watching much more closely the last couple of cycles and that is uh, i'll call it the quality of the candidate the the you know the obviously there's a lot of candidates who get a lot of attention but those aren't necessarily kind of the core candidates that are out there battling, you know, in those 74 districts that you talk about. Talk about how you, you know, found candidates that fit the district uh, or, you know, had those local connections 
rather than, you know, maybe people who woke up one day and decided, you know, they wanted to be in Congress and maybe they didn't have the experience. You know, it was uh, changing the way we do recruitment. Uh, I get to Washington and uh, I, 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 I like to believe that I, like you, like the people that work with me, uh, we know our state better than people from elsewhere. Uh, you know, consultants, I don't trash them. Consultants can be very helpful. They're very valuable. But even the best political consultant in Washington, D.C., who uh, uh, is trying to tell you about a candidate from your state, even the most straight shooting consultant is going to have a uh, a subconscious bias because of a potential profit motive. You know, they might look at this candidate as someone that uh, they would work for. And, and they're trying to be uh, uh, they're trying to be direct and straight with you when they're telling you, oh, there's a great candidate, whatever. That doesn't work. In my mind, uh, it comes, I, I know better what the, the bench is for Republican candidates in Minnesota. And if I don't know personally, the people that are around me, my, my colleagues in the delegation, uh, the people that work on the Republican uh, issues in Minnesota, they know, they know. So what we did, Boyce, was we, I guess I, uh, created a recruitment committee that we put the, the uh, members in charge of. Uh, so four years ago, I asked Susan Brooks from Indiana to uh, chair it. Uh, she put on uh, six, uh, roughly six to eight uh, members who then oversaw regions with uh, members that were below them. And the, uh, the mission was to identify people in your district that we're looking for people who look and sound more like the districts that we uh, are looking to represent. Uh, because those will be the best, best messengers, most credible messengers, and then do the outreach. Once we uh, identified people, uh, for instance, uh, women, women, you could always recruit great female candidates, but it didn't mean they always got through the primary because there were issues that they had getting through the primary. <laughs> yep. We literally, once we did the recruitment, we put them in touch with all our Republican members, which back then wasn't many. We had 13 voting women. And if you counted the territories, we had 15 women total in our conference. We've more than doubled that, Blois, uh, And we're going to double it again, I believe. We've got a record number of women again running. We've got a record number of uh, candidates uh, from uh, Black candidates running, uh, Hispanics, I uh, just all different types of people from different backgrounds uh, and cultural uh, experiences that are running as Republicans, because, frankly, our ideas are the ones that will get uh, these uh, prices under control. That'll make our city safe. That'll secure our border. But what we did was we reached out to them, not just one person, several, and people that are like them. Like, for instance, some of these uh, female candidates, I would have Kathy McMorris Rogers, uh, who uh, came to Congress as a single woman, got married while she was in Congress, started a family while she was in Congress. Martha Roby from Alabama, uh, she was married with children when she came to Congress. Jamie Herrera Butler uh, and, and uh, Kathy both have special needs kids. We made sure that they talked to these candidates and explained to them not only what they could expect and why they, they should uh, believe they can do it, but then also uh, the challenges on the campaign side uh, to help them understand the business that you have to build. And look, it was incredibly successful last time. I think we're going to be more successful this year. Uh, let's fast forward. Uh, it's past election day. You've done your job. You've recruited the candidates. You've taken the majority in the House. What are the top issues that you think, A, you want to 
that the new Congress would want to tackle and what can get done, you know, with a Democratic president? Well, it really is up to the president, isn't it? Uh, we're going to do our best to uh, encourage the administration to adopt uh, the ideas that we believe will uh, address the uh, cost of living crisis that we have in this country. And I think it starts with energy independence. And we're going to do our best to uh, incent our major cities to uh, hold prosecutors accountable. Uh, you know, you want federal dollars. I believe that you should be enforcing your laws. And if you don't like your laws, guess what? You've got a legislative process. Uh, you've got a uh, process at the local level. Change your ordinances. Change your uh, your laws. Uh, don't just tell people we're not enforcing them. Uh, and there are other things that we can do. But the biggest thing uh, that I would like to be part of uh, as we go forward is rebuilding the trust in, uh, in Washington, D.C. You know, it's gotten to the point where... And I blame leadership. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has metal detectors uh, at the uh, door to the House. Uh, She's allowed proxy voting so people don't even come to work. Uh, They have someone else vote their proxy. Uh, We need to end all that, uh, Blois. And we need to uh, recognize that, uh, yeah, we have different uh, political perspectives, ideological perspectives. But at the end of the day, we're all Americans and we want what's best for this country. And I think uh, when uh, the government works the best, it's when the uh, the legislators, the elected officials, actually build relationships with one another uh, and try to try to work together to get those things done. What new job would you want if Republicans take the majority in leadership in Congress? Oh, I ha- I have some thoughts, Blois, but uh, you got to stay focused. Got to stay <laughs> focused on thirty nine days. I got to, you know, it's it's what I tell all these guys. Uh, don't be measuring the drapes, man. There's nothing to run for unless you win. And, uh, you know, we've got the right candidates. We've got the message. Uh, it's uh, it's, it's going to be uh, ours, I believe, uh, to, uh, to govern. So you run to win, you win to govern. We're going to win on November uh, 8th. I, I will figure out what I'm going to do next. Like I said, I have some ideas, but you got to win first. Otherwise, there's nothing to run for. We, we talk about ideas all the time here, Congressman. We could talk about ideas right now. Yeah. <laughs> um. I want to. I'm, come I'm all ears for your ideas. I'm all. Well, I got. I got plenty, but uh, <laughs> I don't get to share them uh, during the election season. Maybe after. Um, one of the local issues here has a connection to the federal government, and that's this. You know, the indictments around the feeding our future scandal and fraud. That was federal money uh, administered with federal rules by a state agency. Uh, you know, any thoughts on kind of how a program like that, which is complicated and big and, um, and national, how a program like that, that, you know, arguably we, we don't want kids to go hungry. And so if there's federal support to, you know, keep kids fed, uh, you want that to get to the kids uh, and that need it. Any thoughts on either tightening federal rules or relooking at the way states are required to administer these programs? I, I got to tell you that this is one of my problems with that uh, American Rescue Plan. First off, uh, on the issue that you're talking about right there in Minnesota, it's kind of like that uh, that movie Grumpy Old Men when they left the fish under the uh, under the seat. Uh, something really smells, and uh, there's a lot of work to be done to figure out why it happened, who allowed it to happen, uh, who is asleep at the switch, who's. Uh, 
who, who really should be answering? And I, I'm going to bet it's a whole bunch of people. You're talking about a quarter of a billion dollars, right? Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, let's let uh, Andy Luger and company do their job. I, I, I've i been very critical of politicians who want to uh, play uh, lawyer and uh, judge, uh, you know, whether it's criminal uh, uh, enterprises or uh, uh, civil and this, uh, this civil one, which has resulted in criminal charges. We'll see. Uh, but from a uh, from a federal standpoint, Blaze, the American Rescue Plan did not have any uh, uh, requirements that you audit. I mean, th- this is uh, go back to uh, Hurricane Katrina, and they sent all the funds locally. They disappeared. No. You have to, you have to have mechanisms in place when you pass these appropriations bills, when you go to send these money as to how you are going to follow the money. And by the way, how you're going to go back later and do an audit and account for how it was used. Uh, when uh, when my colleagues on the other side of the aisle are refused because we offered an amendment to the American Rescue Plan to put uh, uh, the uh, resources in place to not only supervise distribution of monies, but to oversee it and then audit it, right? After the fact, to make yep. sure, because two things. One, we don't have to assume that everybody's uh, committing theft, but we want to know that the policy that we voted for is actually working and it's getting to the people that it needs to get to. That's as much a purpose of an audit as it is to uh, root out uh, uh, criminal acts, right? And theft. So uh, yes, there is a place for the federal government uh, but you've got to put it in the bills when they go out. And there has just been a complete lack of uh, willingness to do that uh, with these emergency funds. And here's here's an example of, of one that uh, has a, a at least its stated purpose was the right one. And it was uh, apparently, allegedly uh, misused and abused. Congressman Emmer, thanks for joining us on Sunday Take. We'll talk to you in, I don't know, 35 days and see how your uh how your election night was 35 boy that'll be before We're, we'll be a little early it's 39 days today so i know did you we'll say know. 45 we'll know we'll know <laughs> we'll know well all you got to do is see what we see uh blois 80 percent of our money is on offense around the country and interestingly 80 percent of the democrats money is on defense in the same places the middle of the political field right now is about a d plus eight that's the middle of the field. And, and uh, if you want any more confirmation of that, it was reported this morning that my counterparts down the street, the DCCC, they cut uh, Tom O'Halloran in Arizona loose, and they cut Al Lawson in Jacksonville, Florida loose. In other words, they told their own incumbents, uh, your seats are not winnable, so we're not going to invest any money in you. Uh, that's That doesn't bode well for the next 39 days. But again, we haven't won anything yet. We got to run it through the tape. Sounds good. Thanks, Congressman. See you, man. When we come back, we'll go deeper into the issues of the week and what looks ahead as we look towards debates in the governor's race and that new Jensen internal poll. Blois Olson on Sunday Take. We'll be right back. Final interview this week on Sunday Take is with Joe Good. I've known Joe for quite a while. He's a pollster. He's worked in and around issues and candidates. And we're not going to dive into certain candidate issues uh, issues this year necessarily. But what I want to talk about is this ongoing conversation about how do you trust a poll? What are pollsters doing, uh, researchers doing to try to understand the electorate different this year? There's been a lot of national stories. There's been some adjustments. And Joe Good joins me now. Joe, thanks for joining me. 
Well, thanks for having me. So what's the state of polling in uh, on October 2nd, 2022, uh, five and a half weeks before midterm? Well, um, that's a that's a broad question. Um, we are all looking at our data, checking it twice, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a lot of fundamentals that were probably locked in, you know, at the beginning of the summer with inflation and gas. Um, and a lot of us had some confidence in models that we had done beforehand. And then the, with the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, that kind of threw us all for a little bit of a, a you know, second look. And how is that really going to affect the electorate? So I think that we've seen a little bit of ups and downs there. We're certainly seeing Democrats being more motivated and uh, reaching that level of engagement or enthusiasm that we that we've seen from Republicans all year, frankly. Yeah. Um, as you know, you know, the party out of power tends to be a little more uh enthused and motivated in these types of elections uh, than the party that, that won the last presidency. So we're seeing that in our numbers um, in terms of uh, partisan motivation being fairly equal. Uh, but what we don't know is, I think, how much that's going to keep going for the next couple of weeks. And, you know, we know historically that uh, the party out of power or that, I'm sorry, the presidential party usually loses seats. In an election like this, um, we know that inflation spells bad news for uh, the party, you know, the Democratic Party in this case that, that's uh, holding the White House. So I think that's the question that we're all struggling with is, is are the um, changes that we've seen with the Dobbs decision and just some of the, the hearings on Trump and the, uh, you know, the January 6th incident, the insurrection, how that's really going to play out as people start casting ballots, which is happening right now. What do you think about the data and the public and those who are polled? How how are you trying to make sure you're accounting for either reluctant people to answer polls or kind of the quiet voters, those kinds of things? What what kind of adjustments do you make to the sample? Sure. So what we're doing a lot more of this year are what we call hybrid samples, where we're not relying strictly on our phone interviews, uh, but we are doing more with uh, SMS, text, online interviews, panels, um, you know, anything that we can do to kind of get a completed interview. Uh, it's no mystery that, that phone response rates are really down. Uh, I've been in this business for 30 years and, you know, we're at a point now where, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to get folks to pick up the phone. Um, we do find that folks are willing to take surveys online. Uh, you know, if you text them, they're, willing to do a shorter interview, um, you know, through an SMS text link. Emails don't work quite as well, but you can get some folks by email. And, you know, we know more about voters and and uh, registered voters now probably than we've ever known before. Every state has a computerized voter file. Um, all pollsters have access to uh, these voter files. So we we know what a turnout should look like in terms of education, age, gender, so we're scrambling to get those interviews any way we can to make sure that our samples are looking like what we expect the uh, likely electorate to look like. You know, obviously, some critics of polling point back to, you know, 2016, 2020, those presidential years. Is there anything different to think about in midterms? Um, you know, in Minnesota, we had 
high record turnout in the 2018 midterm. And I know turnout was high across the country in, uh, in 2018, but you know, as I analyze things, I start to look at, you know, who's going to turn out. We, you talked about energy levels. Can they match 2018? Do they not match? Is it somewhere 2014, you know, just historical data, any sense of how that model adjustment or getting that sample right compared to energy or enthusiasm or, you know, turnout models this year? Well, that's, that's another one of the the great unknowns. Um, With Trump on the ballot, that's when the Trump voter is sure to turn out. Yeah. And the, with Trump not on the ballot is if indeed we are missing the Trump voter. So, you know, to, so to speak. Um, are they really going to turn out this year? I, I think they are. Um, and I think that even in our polling, we do find in certain areas when we're polling more rural areas, uh, especially in the Mountain West, we do have a harder time getting a certain um, older, more conservative male voter um, on the phone for sure. We have found that sometimes we can pick up those response rates through email um that's the only difference we find when we do emails they tend to be much more conservative older voters um i suspect that those folks are energized um i think that they're going to cast a vote whether trump is there or not and i think you're going to see that turnout are we missing them when we poll you know i I will find out in november um (laughs) you know and and it's it's not that we're missing, let's say that a stereotypical Trump voter is a 55-year-old man without a college degree. It's not that we're not getting 55-year-old men without a college degree. Uh, the question is whether we're getting that Trump voter, you know, that reluctant Trump voter. Yep. And and they can be a little bit different um, than, say, a, a, a Republican of that type. My guest is Joe Good. He's CEO of American Strategies. It's polling and research group. Uh, full disclosure and transparency. We work together for clients, not candidates, but associations, trade groups, and issues. And uh, he's somebody I've trusted. Uh, he did work for the Clinton administration. He does lean D. And so in the spirit of Sunday Take, we want to make sure you know where he's coming from. Uh, Joe, uh, one of the things is obviously accuracy and getting the best picture is your goal too for your clients. You don't, you know, you want to have the best information for them. When you think about that quiet Trump voter, those turnouts or those other dynamics, one thing it makes me think about, you know, for Democrats is young voter energy. Obviously, Dobbs uh, brought some very early cycle energy, um, meaning kind of enthusiasm at a time when usually the campaign cycle doesn't have enthusiasm. In fact, I think voters have been exhausted and are tuning in late this year. What's your sense of energy amongst young voters who tend to vote for Democrats or young independents who maybe don't vote in midterms traditionally that might be motivated this year? Well, um, I'm of two minds on this one. Um, Obviously we saw in Kansas that there was a, phenomenal turnout among uh, younger voters, women voters um, in uh, maintaining the right to protect an abortion in the uh, Kansas constitution. 
Um, but I've been in this business like you for 30 years and every year somebody's going to have an organization and tell us how if young people turn out to vote, then yeah. Democrats are going to do great. And unfailingly, young people don't turn out to vote. Um, or not, not, not in the numbers that they uh, are representative of or, or that they could. Right. Um, when I ask a question, how enthusiastic are you to vote this year? We have like a, extremely enthusiastic, very enthusiastic, somewhat enthusiastic scale. Um, our younger voters and our women voters are a little lower on that scale, interestingly. Um, and I don't know if that means compared to what, right? So that might mean that they're very enthusiastic this year. That means they're more enthusiastic than somewhat enthusiastic, and they they will turn out to vote. Um, but I think that's the wild card for Democrats in a lot of these safe, a lot of these uh, close Senate races is whether these voters under 40, especially women, are going to turn out to vote. And and that would make the, the big difference. Um, like I said, I'm a little jaded uh, because I just haven't seen it happen. But we've never seen a right taken away from people before. And we've right. never seen something as big as uh, Roe v. Wade be turned over. So um, I think that, you know, again, the proof will be in the pudding. But to date... Uh, with the limited sample size elections that we have in places like Alaska and Kansas and some of the other special elections, uh, those voters have turned out. Well, and I think that's one of the things of, you know, as you look at those specials in Kansas, Alaska, hyping up a special is one thing, especially closer to Dobbs. Then you start to add in, you know, what I would just call is this, this kind of here in the Midwest, obviously Minnesota, Wisconsin, have very contested races. Wisconsin is probably, you know, one of the top two or three watch states in the country right now. Um, whereas it's just been nonstop for a couple of years, right? Between a pandemic, a presidential, um, crime waves, uh, municipal elections, referendums here in Minneapolis, St. Paul last year, is that what I what I found was just those younger voters are they they seem a little worn out um for from life in in the last couple of years but also you know they're they're they don't automatically trust a party they're much more likely to trust a person um you know you saw young voters in 2018 and then in 2020 again you know really enthusiastically in a democratic primary turn out and help Ilhan Omar in her primaries, whereas they didn't turn out this year, even right after Dobbs. And so, you know, uh, that's one of the puzzle pieces I'm trying to figure out, too, is just where um, where, where they're going to get younger voters excited. But I also thought it was interesting when you said younger voters, those under 40, because um, we do know that, you know, after 30, you do start to vote in a higher level or higher intensity. Um, and those are the folks that I think inflation is probably hitting hard this year. Is there a is there a sector that you think inflation is more top of mind than other sectors or other demographics? Well, certainly for non-college voters, lower income voters, uh, they're really taking it on the chin. Um, and and they're yeah, I think those are the folks that are very skeptical that anybody's looking out for them. Um, and I, I agree with what you're saying about, um, you know, we can quibble whether it's under 40, under 35, 18 to 30. Um, but there's, there's just a skepticism about 
um, the system uh, writ large and uh, politicians as to who's really looking out for them. Excuse me. Um, And uh, that, you know, that does drive, I think, like you say, that they are very focused on individuals and less so on institutions because uh, a lot of them grew up, you know, during the first recession of 2008, you know, and or came of age. And um, like you say, it's just been one thing after another. And while they can get excited about individuals, um, it doesn't seem like that enthusiasm is, is quite there as much for the institutional uh, parties. Joe, as we begin to kind of wind down this um, interview, when you're going into the last few weeks and then looking at post haste the election results the last couple cycles where where have you where have you think pollsters have kind of hit it or where have you guys found your groove and where have you said we need to be better well i mean i would encourage everybody listening to remember uh two things you know a poll is a snapshot in time uh when we when we do a poll this week we're telling you what we think would happen if the election were held today Yep. And we oftentimes get held accountable for saying candidate A is five points ahead of candidate B in early October. Uh, but things change because campaigns matter and people make decisions late. And so we're, we're not trying when we release a poll today to tell you what's going to happen on November 8th. So remember that a poll is a snapshot in time. And the second is that polls have margin of errors. Um, so that if we say a candidate is at 45% and the poll has a margin of error of plus or minus four percentage points, that means we're 95% sure the candidates at either 41% or 49, you know, somewhere between 41 and 49%. So oftentimes just too much is spent on the horse race question, I think. Yeah. And as you're evaluating polls, Look at the right direction, wrong track numbers. Look at the major concern numbers. Look at the, you know, things that are happening in the poll that are telling you cues about where the electorate is at. Oftentimes, the horse race number is is the least interesting number. Um, more of the point that what you're asking, uh, you know, I think pollsters have gotten it right more often than not. If Absolutely. you account for that a margin of error, you talked about 2018. The polls were actually pretty accurate in 2018. 2020, we were off in certain states. I think that, um, you know, we have realized that that there there is a certain kind of voter that seems to be reluctant to pick up the phone or to take a survey. Um, And, you know, I think that's where we're trying to find creative ways to get those people. Um, Texting is one way. Online interviews is another way. There's something called panel research. A lot of folks sign up to to be on a panel uh, where they agree to take polls. Um, that can work for a statewide survey. It doesn't work as well if you're doing a mini, mini, you know, Minneapolis mayoral race. Um, but there's lots of things that we're doing to try to figure out how to reach those voters and, and assure them they're, you know, answering a confidential survey. Um, and it's mostly transparent. I mean, most pollsters will be working with something like the American Association of Public Opinion Research or uh, Public Opinion Research Association where everybody has this problem. And um, I think we're all, you know, comparing notes and comparing response rates and comparing methodologies uh, because everybody has an interest in knowing what the public thinks, uh, whether you're a Democrat or whether you're a Republican or yep. if you're trying to get something done at a local level, um, you know, polls are good. And, right. and uh, obviously I'm biased, but, but um 
you know, a lot of brain power is going into figuring out how to make sure that we can keep doing accurate public opinion surveys. Um, but there's no doubt that right now the industry is is trying to pick that lock of how to transition to this point where everybody knows the phone number that's calling you <laughs> when, <laughs> exactly. when, when, when I look at my cell phone. And, exactly. and that's, that's the trick. Joe Good uh, from American Strategies, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thanks for having me, Blois. I'm Blois Olson. When it's Sunday at 9, it's Sunday Take. Reminder, tonight at 6, we have the Secretary of State's debate live right here on News Talk 830 WCCO.